That brings us to the fourth major division of the book of Acts. And this is Paul on trial. And this is pretty much the rest of Acts. This is chapters 21, verse 17, through chapter 28, verse 31. In this division, Paul is charged for crimes by the Jews in Jerusalem, arrested by the Romans, put on trial, and sent to Rome for his final trial. This is the climax of the Jewish opposition against the gospel that becomes so intense that they are willing to kill those who preach the gospel just as Paul had been, uh, had done before his conversion. Yet the Gentile Roman officials would continuously find no fault in Paul and declare him innocent, and many Gentiles would come to faith. So what's interesting is that the very thing that Paul was doing to the Christians, grabbing them, arresting them, and leading, hopefully leading to their death, is the very thing that's going to begin to happen to him. Yet despite all of this, the gospel will continue to go to the Gentiles. The Jews will still continually fail to bring an end to the gospel. The Greeks will still fail to just stop it and promote their idolatry. And in all of it, Roman officials will continually declare Christianity, Paul, not guilty of violating any Roman laws in any kind of a way. Once Paul arrived in Jerusalem, the narrative slows tremendously. Less than 12 days are covered in Acts chapter 21 through 23. That gives you, like, that's three chapters. And less than 12 days are covered. While Acts 24 through 26 covers two years. The legal proceeding against Paul covers about two years. So he's going to go through this whole legal trials for about two years. Not ever wondering what's going to happen. How's it all going to turn out? So the first section in this division is Paul's arrest and hearings in Jerusalem. In this section, Paul returns to Jerusalem and is charged by the Jews for teaching and violation of the law, for defiling the temple with the Gentiles, and then, of course, preaching a disturbance of the law, the violation of the law. Roman soldiers arrest Paul for disturbing the peace. All the discussions before Acts 24 are pre-trial hearings where the Romans are trying to figure out what conflict the Jews have with Paul and how to deal with it. So from chapters 21 through chapter 24, or chapter 21 through 23, it's all pre-trial. And it's just the Romans trying to figure out why do they hate Paul so much and should we care and should we prosecute them? The we material comes to an end here not picking up again until Acts 27. I told you that many scholars believe that there are three sections of we material. Okay, there's a section where Paul or um, Luke hooks up with Paul in the second missionary journey and then leaves in Philippi or um, does not continue on with Paul after Paul leaves Philippi. Then it picks up again in the third missionary journey where Paul comes to Philippi and picks Luke up again and Luke then comes all the way to Jerusalem with him. It's about this time that that section then ends. And the third we section doesn't pick up until Acts chapter 27. Most scholars, though, now believe that there's actually two we sections. And even though the we is going to stop from chapter 21 to chapter 27, that Luke has actually been there the entire time. But the reason that it's no longer saying we is because everything that you're going to read from this point on is Paul on trial. There is no we on trial. 
There's no we going here and doing this. There's no we defending ourselves before the Roman government. There's Luke in the audience watching his good friend be put on trial. And so it'll be Paul put on trial, Paul in the arena, Paul defending himself, Paul being moved from this prison, that prison, that prison. And Luke is going to be there the entire time recording the events and all the speeches and all the the legal material and that kind of stuff and even visiting Paul when he can. But then when Paul is put on the ship to be sailed to Rome, then the we section begins again because then Luke can be an active participant again. And so it's very clear that even though the we section has come to an end here, it's more because Luke is not an active participant in all the events. He's an audience member to everything that is happening. Does that kind of make sense? For pretty much chapter 21, where, um, or chapter 20, where Luke picked back up, he's here all the way to the end with a brief departure in chapter 28, and that's the last chapter anyways. There is a sense of importance here because, once again, people argue like, wow, the detail is still really significant here. And there is some significance here that Luke is of a first-hand account still. And the more first-hand account that he is here, the more legitimacy that this gives the, the, the writings and the, the, the reports that are happening in these books. So chapter 21, verse 17. When we arrived in Jerusalem, the brothers welcomed us gladly. The next day Paul went with us to see James, and as the elders were there. So remember, James is the head of the Jerusalem church. When Paul had greeted them, he began to explain in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard this, they praised God. And then they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all ardent observers of the law. They have been informed about you, that you teach all the Jews how living among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs, which Paul is not saying any of that. In fact, if he's done anything, he's demonstrated that he's actually participating in some of this stuff. What then should we do? They will no doubt hear that you have come. So do what we tell you to do. Paul's in Jerusalem, and he begins to tell them all the amazing things from his mercenary journeys. And they're super excited But that excitement is very dampened because there's a huge movement of Jewish Christians who do not like Paul and they want to bring an end to him, whether physically or just ministry-wise. We don't know. And this is what James and all the elders are worried about. They support Paul. Remember, James gave the edict and said, no, everything that Paul is doing is okay. The Gentiles shouldn't have to be under the law. They shouldn't have to do these as long as they abstain from these things. So they're not at odds with Paul, but they're also fearful of the tension that's happening in the church. And Paul coming could be a powder keg, and it's going to be a powder keg. And so at this point, there are two major groups of Christians in Jerusalem. There are the Jewish and Gentile Christians who saw the gospel as the fulfillment of the Mosaic Law. They, they, they believed that the Mosaic Law was temporary and a tutor for the one who is greater to come, Jesus. They believe that the law is good, that it teaches, that we should um, to, to learn from it and, empl- and employ the ideas and the principles in our life. But ultimately, Christ and the Holy Spirit is our God. 
and that we are to be led by that. The other group of Christians are the Jewish devout Christians, the ones who were so devout to the Mosaic law and kosher and the temple. And even though they've converted to Christ as the Messiah, they're having a hard time letting go of the law and the ritualist practices. And this number has become stronger. We don't know exactly whether they've increased in number and since the edict in Acts chapter 15, or whether they've just increased in power. Were more and more of them being converted? Very possible. Jerusalem is the heart of the Mosaic Law in the temple, and as more of except Christ, their numbers are going to get bigger. Or did the edict rile them up politically and make them try to take more of a foothold in power in the church to direct it the way that they should? Don't know. Either way, they have great influence now. And they're not happy about Paul. And not only are they not happy about Paul, they're either intentionally making up and exaggerating what Paul has been preaching or unintentionally misunderstood what he's preaching but don't care enough to validate it because they don't like what he's implying. And what they're saying is that he's intentionally telling people they don't have to obey the law and to intentionally prevent people from being circumcised. And Paul has never done any of that. All he's said is that is not necessary for salvation. And so these are the two groups here. And what James is saying here is, you've got to do what we tell you to do to keep the peace. What's interesting, there's no mention of the donation being given. One of the major things that Paul was doing as he was going from church to church was gathering money for Jerusalem. And you would think if you brought back this large sum of money that you've been collecting for four years, that that would be a pretty big deal when you bring it to the church of Jerusalem, right? But even Paul in Romans 15 said that he was afraid that his donation would not be well received when he got to Jerusalem because it was the wrong time at the wrong place. Because when he came back, there was so much political tension and upheaval that when he gave it to them, nobody really cared because what they really cared more than anything was that they feel like Paul was a threat. They felt like Paul was a threat. And no matter how exorbitant the donation might have been, no matter how generous he is in providing it, no matter how thankful they are, well, ideologies always trump everything. And when people threaten your ideologies, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Some people have said, really? Really? Are there really people that are ready to kill people and all this kind of stuff? It's like, well, one, yeah, you've been seeing it. But how hot is Jerusalem? Paul Hill says this. Josephus. Josephus was a really famous writer. He wrote on antiquities and the Jewish wars. And he was basically a, a Jewish man who fought against the Romans in 135. And um, he was a very, uh, a very astute student of history. And he got captured by the Romans and imprisoned. And he wrote two giant books um, to explain to the Romans why the Jews were doing what they were doing. Why, why are they such a pain in your rear end? And why are they fighting so hard? Um, and the hope was to help Rome realize this and maybe change their tactics of dealing with the Jews rather than just wholesale slaughter. And so in prison, he wrote these books, and he is one of our best understandings of how the Jews during the time of Jesus and a little bit after thought. 
and, and how political things were working that the Bible tends to ignore. And so it says this, Josephus described the period of the mid-50s as a time of intense Jewish nationalism and political unrest. One insurrection after another rose to challenge the Roman overlords. And Felix, the guy that we're going to be introduced next, brutally suppressed them all. This only increased the Jewish hatred for Rome and inflamed anti-Gentile sentiments. It was at this time when pro-Jewish sentiment was at its height and friendliness with outsiders was viewed askance. Considering public relations, Paul's mission to the Gentiles would not have been well received. The Jerusalem elders were in somewhat of a bind. On one hand, they had supported Paul witness to the Gentiles at the Jerusalem conference. And now they found Paul a persona non grata and his mission discredited not only among the Jewish populace, which they were seeking to reach, but also among their more recent converts. They did not want to reject Paul. Indeed, they praised God for success. Still, they had their own mission to the Jews to consider. And for that, Paul was a distinct liability. They hate each other right now. This is the 50s. Not our 50s. And right now, Jewish nationalism and hating the Gentiles at its highest. They have been under the yoke of Rome for hundreds of years. And many scholars believe that Jesus just kind of inflamed this even more. Not that Jesus intentionally inflamed it with anything he said or did, and in a a go-get-them kind of a sense, but that Jesus being such a popular figure that so many of them poured so much of their hope in him as the Messiah, and then they believed that he was a fraud and had failed them, and the whole Barabbas and Pilate thing and all that kind of stuff, that at this point it was just like, they're angry. And then Christianity comes along and starts bringing up the name of Jesus again and talking about how that's actually not what the Messiah was about, was overthrowing Rome. And this just created more and more anger. And the Gentiles, they begin to riot more and more. The Gentiles started cracking down more and more. And the grift just became bigger and bigger and bigger. And at this point, it is huge. And what's going to happen is they're going to have people like Felix and a couple others who are just going to mishandle it all. Governors, Roman governors. And they're going to mishandle it so badly that we're in the 50s. In about 15 years, the powder keg is going to explode. And they're going to riot to such a point that the Romans are going to come in and completely destroy the temple. One of the wonders of the ancient world. That's how much they are just sick and tired of the Jews. Which is just going to increase hostility even more. Now the Jews will sit on that for a while because they just got destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. But eventually this powder keg will explode again in 135 AD. And the Romans will either completely massacre all the Jews or drive them completely out of Jerusalem. And thus becomes the great scattering and why you have so many Jews in Russia and Poland and Germany before the next Roman-like guy, Hitler, comes along. And the reason you have so many Jews in Europe and all around there um, is because of this scattering in 135 AD, which then allows it to be repopulated by the Arabs who lived there from 135 until 1948, 
And then when England felt sorry for the Holocaust, because they had kind of a hand in it, when they said, we don't want you, go back to Germany, and then they realized how bad it really was after the war, they gave England, Israel back their land. But then the Arabs were like, I don't like that. This is our land. And the Jews are like, but it's our land taken away from us. And welcome to a very nutshell explanation of the conflict today. But that's kind of where it all began. This is hot. This is really hot right now. And all Paul has done is become like throwing water into a grease fire. And it's just going to like splatter things even more and make it worse. And Paul's not doing this intentionally. It's just the nature of, honey, I'm home, (laughs) kind of a thing. It's the wrong timing at the wrong point. But he knows that God told him to do this. He knows that God told him to do this. So James has an idea of how to assuade everything. Verse 22, what then should we do? They will no doubt hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow and take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that there's nothing in what they have been told. There's nothing in what they've all been told about you, but that you yourself live in conformity with the law. But regarding the Gentiles who have believed, we have written a letter having decided that they should avoid meat that has been sacrificed to idols and blood and what has been strangled in sexual morality. So James' idea is this. Show the Jewish, the devout Jewish Christians are still holding to the law that you're not renouncing the law is bad or that you should never have anything to do with the law or any of that kind of stuff, that you're willing to do the customs of the law still. And one of the things is there are men who have taken some kind of a vow and has come to the end of their vow. We're going to learn later that this vow was seven days, so it can't be a Nazarite vow because the Nazarite vow requires at least 30 days. That's number six. We talked about that already with Paul. So it's probably some kind of purification vow that they've done where they've taken a week of purification and sworn a vow to God in some kind of a sense. And now it's time for them to shave their heads and then pay the temple uh, a sacrifice and to end the purity vow and then do some kind of animal sacrifice. It's not uncommon for people who have taken this vow to maybe have a sponsor. And so what James is saying is be their sponsor. Go with them to the temple do all the regulations and the rituals the way that you're supposed to, according to the law, and pay their way. And what this will show all these Jewish Christians who still have a problem with you, that you do understand the law, that you get it. Now, remember, Paul was being trained by Gamaliel, the most respected and most intelligent, most prominent Pharisee there was. He was a Pharisee himself. He knows the law. He knows the regulations. But remember, years have gone by, and lots of false rumors are spreading. And so maybe he's turned into this guy that never knew the law, according to rumors. So they're saying, do everything publicly in front of everybody so that they know that you do know the law, that you can do it right, and that you have no problem doing it. And then pay for their way, meaning that you sponsor and support them in what they're doing. And hopefully this will let them know that you all these stories are false and they have no validity. But this is very important. James goes on and says, but concerning the Gentiles, nothing has changed. We are not compromising ourselves. 
We are not going back on this and saying that the law has to be adhered to by Gentiles in order to be saved, nor are we saying that Jews have to adhere to the law to be saved. That letter stands. We still support it. Nothing will change. And this is actually pretty reasonable. It's reasonable that Paul just says, okay. Because remember, nothing of this has to do with salvation. Nobody is saying, Paul is saying, I have to be, I, I'm not saved until I do this. Because even a Jew would never say that any of this saved them. All Paul is saying is, I still respect Jewish customs given to you by God as long as you respect the letter that the church wrote for the Gentile. Maybe not as long. But in addition, I would like you to continue to respect the letter that we wrote to the Gentiles. So this isn't a compromise in any kind of a way. This is just trying to let people know who Paul really is and where he stands and what the gospel is really about. Once again, some people have said, there's no way the Paul of the letters would ever do this. But we already talked about that. Remember, he was not against Jewish customs or laws. Even Jesus did all these things. Jesus even celebrated Hanukkah, which is even out of the Bible. That's just a Jewish custom. What he's against is saying that these things are necessary for salvation. And that, there, there's, none of that is being communicated this in either intentionally or unintentionally in any kind of way. Some people have also accused us of being a trap to get Paul out into the public right in the middle of the temple where he'll be surrounded by 100% Jewish people who are anti-him. And they, when he publicly is there, they can pounce on him and seize him and kill him because that's actually what ends up happening. But this isn't a trap because it's James' idea. And James would have never set Paul up. Never would have set him up, especially after what he said about the letter and all that kind of stuff. This is just James having a good idea and the Holy Spirit is going, evil men are going to use it to their advantage and the Holy Spirit is going to use it to his advantage. Verse 26, Then Paul took the men the next day and after he had purified himself along with them, he went to the temple and gave notice of the com completion of the days of purification when the sacrifice would be offered for each of them. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from the providence of Asia, who had seen him in the temple area, stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches everyone, everywhere, against our people and our law and this sanctuary. So they're screaming, He's against all of us, He's against our temple, and He's against our law. Here He is. Ignore the fact that he's in our temple doing rituals in the right way and praising God and adhering and supporting Jewish men and all that kind of stuff. Don't see that. Just hear what I say. And we all know how powerful don't pay attention to what you see. Just listen to what I say can be. Furthermore, he has brought Greeks into the inner courts of the temple and made this holy place richly unclean. For they had seen Trophius the Ephesian, and the city, and with him previously. And they assumed Paul had brought him into the inner temple courts. The temple was huge, and it had a large courtyard. And this courtyard was divided into several sections. There was what was considered the outer court of the court of the Gentiles. The outer court was the court that anyone could go into if they were there to worship God. They had to be either a Jew who had been circumcised and part of the Abrahamic covenant, or they had to be a Greek 
or a Gentile that was a proselyte or a God-fearer. Obviously, like, we don't want just some any Greek coming in and just sacrificing to idols and that kind of stuff. So they were there for the right reasons. So anybody was allowed in that region. Then there was the inner court, which was called, the, there were, in the inner court, there were two courts, the, the, the court of Israel and the court of the women. And, of course, the women were allowed in the court, and then the men were allowed in the other court. And this is for only Abrahamic covenant people. Jews who are circumcised part of the Abrahamic covenant can trace their lineage back to him, which very few people can actually do that at this point. In fact, this, this was so serious that there were literally signs every so many feet in the temple courtyard saying, go back, no Gentiles, you will be killed. Like, how would you like that in our church? Like, there's, you walk in your church and you pass at least 20 signs saying, go back, you will be killed, no further if you're not a Christian right? So they took this so seriously, they were willing to ruin the look of the temple and the feel of a worship service with all these like signs everywhere, warning them in multiple different languages, and like Greek language and Latin language and all this kind of stuff. To make sure that no Gentiles said, I didn't know. Then there were the inner inner courts, and that was the courts for only the priests only. This crowd has accused Paul of being, bringing a Greek into the inner courts. They saw him and Paul together, but it doesn't even say that they saw him in the temple. They're just accusing of him of being in the temple. And so they have used this. This is obviously either just gross, incompetent assumptions, or it's intentional deception on the part of the crowd, or whoever cried this out. And so the whole city was stirred up, and the people rushed together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple courts, and immediately the doors were shut. And while they were trying to kill him, a report was sent up to the commanding officer of the cohort, or the tribune, some translations say, that all Jerusalem was in confusion. The Romans did not allow Jews to execute anybody for any kind of crimes. If they wanted to execute somebody, they would have to bring the charges before a Roman official. The Roman official would have to hear it. And then the Roman official would then declare the death sentence in the example of Jesus. Right? They couldn't just do it. They had to bring him to him, and then they had to come up with treason charges because Rome didn't care about blasphemy with Jesus. There was one exception. Even Rome supported the keeping the Greeks out of the temple and her courts. And even and Jews believed that any Greek that was found in the temple courts had to be killed by God. Sorry, had to be killed for God. This goes all the way back to the Mosaic Law. God's made it very clear that anyone who unlawfully enters the tabernacle courtyards was to be executed. And there's actually an example of this in Numbers 24 and 25 with Phineas. That was according to law. The Romans knew that the temple was very important to the people in Jerusalem and maintaining its sanctity for God as the house of God and even understanding the sanctity of their own temples supported the Jews in this law under the Pax Ramona and said that any Gentile, any Greek that unlawfully enters your temple, we will allow you to kill them. And in fact, you don't ever have to bring the court case to us. You can kill them right then and there if you want. The Jews believed that not only was the temple defiled by an unlawful entry, 
but it would remain defiled until the person who violated it was killed. And it also included anybody who participated in it. So even though Paul can go all the way into the court of Israel and the court of men, if he's responsible for bringing this Greek with him, then he must also be killed to remove the defilement of the temple. This is the most powerful loophole that they have to get rid of Paul. Because they can kill him. And so they drag him out of the temple in order to kill him. And they're about ready to kill him, except there's that whole divine providence thing that kind of intervenes. The cohort, the, the, the tribune, who was in charge of this area, hears about it. Because the temple was such a hot potato of conflict politically and religiously and all kinds of stuff, and so many riots would break out, and Jesus created a lot of those riots during his ministry too, the Romans had built the Antonian fortress right next to it. It literally was attached to it, like some sidecar on a motorcycle kind of a thing. And it was built slightly taller than the temple, as a slap in the Jews' face, like, yes, we will respect your God and your customs here for the sake of the Pax Ramona, but Rome is still sovereign. And you still answer to us. And they kept a large number of Roman soldiers in the Antonian Fortress at all times because they know that riots can break out like that. And so they could literally, basically, the, 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 one of the doors of the Antonian Fortress emptied right out into the Temple Mount. And they could empty out a couple hundred soldiers, um, even up in, in holy months or holy festivals, a thousand soldiers or more, within, within minutes, under minutes. They could empty, fill this thing up faster than any fire department can get to your house or cops, no matter how close you live. It would not have been hard for this tribune to hear all this since he's literally next door hearing all this stuff. Verse 31, while they were trying to kill him, a report was sent up of the commanding officer or the cohort or the tribune that all the Jerusalem was in confusion. He immediately took the soldiers and the centurions and ran down to the crowd. When they saw when they saw the commanding officer and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So they're already beating him. Then the commanding officer came up and arrested him, Paul, and ordered him to be tied up with two chains. And he was then asked who he was and what he had done. Obviously, this tribune doesn't know what's going on. The crowd is already beating Paul, ready to kill him. The only thing that stops him from killing him is the, the soldier's intervention. Technically, according to Roman law, if the soldiers find out that Paul really has desecrated the temple, then they would have no problem with the Jews continuing on. Any other time, Rome would not be okay. But on this one occasion, he arrests him and he chains, chains him up. And so what the tribune needs to figure out is, is this just a bunch of unrealistic, angry Jews who are causing another riot? Or is this guy truly some horrible criminal that needs to be put down? He doesn't know. But some of the crowd shouted one thing and others something else. And when the commanding officer was unable to find out the truth because of the disturbance, he ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks. When he came to the steps, Paul had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. So there's so much yelling and screaming. He's like, I have no idea what's going on. All I hear is yelling. So he begins to take Paul to the barracks. But they don't like that because in their mind, 
Paul has violated the temple, and Rome has said that they can kill anybody who does that. Their temple is not purified until Paul is killed. And Rome is now preventing that when Rome says they're allowed to do that. And so they're so angry, they're starting to grab Paul and keep him from being taken to the barracks because this is their right under Roman law. And so the soldiers had to gather around Paul and actually physically pick him up and carry him to safety. Like when you watch like the president and assassination attempt in movies and that kind of stuff, and they just like drag him across the concrete to get him out, so to speak. This is what's happening to Paul. For a crowd of people followed them, screaming away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commanding officer, May I say something to you? The officer replied, Do you know Greek? Then you're not an Egyptian who started a rebellion and led the 4,000 of the assassins into the wilderness some time ago. There was this really, really, really famous Egyptian assassin who was also a, a, a Jew. He was one of the zealots, the dagger-carrying zealots, the ones, um, if you ever watched The Chosen, um, they've really done a good job playing out the zealots there and what they're like. And so he was a zealot who believed that Rome needed to be re removed at all costs. And he had come in and prophesied some things, the fall of the wall and the destruction of these things. And he had led riots and caused a upheaval. And Rome had to squash it really hard. All of his followers were killed. And the Egyptian, he fled for his life back to Egypt. And so there's a really good chance that this guy thinks that the Egyptians come back to gather more followers. Because Paul speaks to him in a very, very educated, um, articulate, fluent Greek, a highly educated Greek. There's no way that an Egyptian would have known a Greek like that polished, that well. Like, right, the further and further you get away from the Greek world, the less and less your accurate, your accent, your grammar, and all that stuff is going to be. He probably assumes it's that. And when Paul speaks to him in Greek, he's like, oh, you can't be the Egyptian. Because there's no way he'd be this fluent. He's obviously that he's operating on an assumption. Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicily, a citizen of important city. The way that this Greek is structured here, Paul seems to have taken this as uh, an insult to him. That he was accused of being this Egyptian guy. Like, what? You thought that I was this guy? And he fires back in his very articulate Greek. No, 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 no. no. And in fact, some people think that he might have interpreted this as like a racial slur or some kind of a thing. But Paul fires back and says, no, 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 no. Not only am I not him, I'm a, from Sicilia. Sicilia was one of the most respected Roman providences outside of Rome itself. It was considered highly elite, highly wealthy, highly respected. And out this far away from Rome, you didn't get any more prestige than that. And so when Paul says this, what he's saying is, no, I'm at the top when it comes to not being official or a politician. Other than that, I come from Sicily. Um, Sicilia. What this means is, there's a really good chance that him being from there means that he even outranks the Roman tribune. Now the Roman tribune realizes he's thrown for a loop because now he's arresting someone who outranks him. And that's a no-no social status pecking order. He's going to become fearful here. 
So when the commanding officer had given him permission, Paul stood on the steps and gestured to the people with his hand. And when he had become silent, he addressed them in Aramaic. So at this point, the tribune is like, whoa, this is not what I thought it was. I thought there was just some ragtag guy, assassin comes in. The Jews are angry like they typically are. It's just something among them. I'm here to squash it because whether it's the Jewish guy or the assassin guy, I don't like any of them. I hate them all. I want them all dead. I don't like being here anymore, right? <laughs> Dealing with all this kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden, he starts hearing a Greek that's polished. And all of a sudden, this man makes a claim that he's coming from an incredibly elite highly ranked city in the Roman Empire. And all of a sudden he realizes at this moment that he might actually be outranked. And he's just chained up this guy. What he's going to surprise him, he's going to find out that this guy is also a Roman citizen later. When Paul says, I want to speak to the crowd, at that point the tribune is like, okay. Because if Paul truly outranks him, and at this point the tribune who has every legal right to arrest him as a Roman soldier, is now allowing Paul to dictate the circumstances and give a speech to the thing, that means the tribune now believe, knows that he is outranked, that Paul's social status surpass, surpasses his. And so he's going to let him speak. Because he knows to do everything he can to give I mean, that's just the way it works. And so what you're going to see from this point on is that in some cases, all hell is going to start breaking out against Paul over and over again. The crowds, arrests, trials, being forgotten in prison, being jerked around politically with red tape from here to here to there. But in all of this, you're going to keep seeing little things where God just keeps preserving him, keep protecting him, and keeps him going until he makes it all the way to Caesar to preach the gospel. And so no matter how bad it gets, God never lets it get so bad that it's completely out of control. And Paul and the gospel are completely eliminated from the picture. And that's the tension we're going to see here, is that it's not good, but it's great, if that makes sense.